The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. And so there was, there was, on the one hand, this need to act quickly and effectively and protect a range of different interests that sometimes are competing, um, and at the same time recognize that we needed, you know, that, that we would need to account for um, the fact that there, other countries would grow into this um, framework um, in the future. And, and when I think about, you know, has it been successful or not, I think about it more from the from the fact that we haven't seen those aggressive, at least in my mind, um, as many aggressive enforcement actions from foreign countries um, that we might otherwise have seen had the Cloud Act not come into effect. I'm Alan Rosenstein, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota and Senior Editor at Lawfare. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 3rd, 2023. Next month will mark the five-year anniversary of the Cloud Act, a foundational piece of legislation on cross-border data transfers and criminal investigations. Before I was a law professor and an editor at Lawfare, I worked in the Department of Justice, where I had the privilege of being a member of the team that developed the Cloud Act. In that capacity, I interacted with representatives from the large tech companies that would be most directly affected by the law. One of these people was Matt Peralt, then the head of global policy development at Facebook, and now the director of the Center on Technology Policy at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Matt joined me in the host chair to discuss the Cloud Act with two more people who were present at its creation. Greg Nojaim, Senior Counsel and Director of the Security and Surveillance Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology, and Aaron Cooper, a partner at the law firm of Jenner and Block, and, at the time, my colleague at the Department of Justice. We talked about the reasons for the Clouds Act development, whether it succeeded in its goals, and what we should expect to see in the next five years. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 3rd, the Cloud Act, five years later. All right, Alan, to kick us off, could you give us a sense of what the Cloud Act is and what problem it was trying to solve? Sure. So the Cloud Act uh, was a law passed in 2018. It's one of those backronyms that Congress loves so very much. Uh, It stands for the Clarifying Lawful Overseas Use of Data Act. And it's basically you can think of as two laws squished together, trying to solve sort of two different but kind of coincidentally related policy problems. And the first one, and the one that the four of us were involved with and kind of know the most about, was the problem of foreign government access to data stored in the United States. So the prototypical example, and this was what actually motivated the law, was that uh, starting in the early 2010s, the United Kingdom was running into problems when doing criminal investigations of crimes involving UK citizens occurring in the UK. And the problem they were running into was that if those UK citizens were using a American let's say, email service like Gmail, and the potentially incriminating or relevant Gmails were located in California, then when the UK issued criminal process on Google, Google would say, well, we'd love to help you, but we can't because US law prohibits us 
as it indeed did, from sharing information that's in the United States with a foreign government. And so the UK was in the position of having to go to the United States Department of Justice and ask for help doing its own investigations. Uh, And that was time consuming and sort of just annoying for the UK. And so the UK, along with other close US allies, asked DOJ for systematic help. And DOJ's response was to work with partners inside the US government, other agencies, uh, and then also a whole host of uh, civil society groups and technology companies to come together and craft a solution that would allow certain countries under certain circumstances to be able to request certain types of data located in the United States. And the outcome of that was the Cloud Act, and we can get into the details of that. Now, that's only half of the Cloud Act. The other half of the Cloud Act was a kind of reciprocal problem that evolved almost completely independently, which is that, um, and I think this was in 2017, but someone can correct me if I'm wrong on the exact date, but around the time that our part of the Cloud Act was being kind of finalized and about to be sent to Congress, the Second Circuit decided in a famous case called Microsoft Ireland that as a matter of statutory interpretation, U.S. domestic surveillance law did not authorize service of process on U.S. companies for data that was stored in overseas data sources. And so this was a uh, this was information held by Microsoft, but in Ireland. And so what the Cloud Act did was it tried to solve both of those problems at the same time. So it created a mechanism where whereby certain countries could enter into relationships with the U.S. so they could get access to data stored in the United States. But it also clarified that the U.S. had statutory authorization to get data from U.S. companies stored overseas. And where the connection was is that it required companies that or required countries rather that wanted access to U.S. data to make sure that their domestic law allowed access from the U.S. to data stored in those countries. And so the combination of those two things ended up being the Cloud Act, which was passed in 2018. Uh, And since then, the main beneficiary of that has been the UK, um, with Australia, I think, either about to go online or already going online. So that's a wonderful law professor overview of the Cloud Act, because you are a wonderful law professor. (laughs) I'm going to try not to take offense at the qualifier (laughs) law professor overview. I would be focused on the wonderful part, which, which I assume to be true. So you were a first party in in this. You were talking about it as if you were one step removed, talking about the U.S. government and the U.K. government. Um, you were at the Justice Department at the time. Aaron was at the Justice Department at the time. I was at Facebook. Greg was at, at the Center for uh, Democracy and Technology. And so we were all involved in some way in these discussions. So I would love to unpack that a little bit. Aaron and Alan, can you talk about it a little bit from the Justice Department's point of view? Sure. And and I should obviously preface this uh, now that uh, I'm at a, a private sector law firm, Jenner and Block, that the views and, and the things I'm, I'm going to be saying and talking about with you guys today represent my views, but not necessarily those of, of Jenner and Block. So, you know, your standard caveat there. Uh, I think, you know, to, to build on on a couple of concepts that, that Alan introduced there. The first was that this wasn't just a, an abstract uh, concern for uh, foreign partners of the United States. I think what became clear to us um, from speaking with with our counterparties in these circumstances was that that there was a real fear that foreign countries would initiate enforcement proceedings to compel the production of information that U.S. law forbade 
U.S.-based technology companies from producing overseas and, and sort of outside of the legal framework of the Stored Communications Act, which governed, at least for stored data, what they could and, and couldn't produce and, and how. And that would have brought this, what was at that point, a, I think, a, a theoretical conflict really to a head. And it also, you know, if, if let's assume the, the decision would have gone in the direction of, you know, U.S., you know, providers or, or in, in the sense of, of supporting the U.S. law uh, view of it that would prohibit production, then you'd have a you'd have an issue for for these foreign counterparties where they would not have access to data in a very real sense of, of that would be necessary um, for responding to or, or investigating serious crime or national security threats, and that would itself create a real uh, a real threat for uh, of data balkanization, right? Balkanization of the internet. Where you would require, you know, different countries would require data concerning their citizens or the communications of people within their country to be situated geographically within their borders. And that would be obviously inefficient from a technological perspective. It would also be counter to, you know, a, a US government policy of supporting a free and open internet. And so, and, and at the same time, it would create real threats, I think, to the types of privacy protections that U.S. law provides under the Stored Communications Act and, and other things because the processes that, that we take for granted might not apply or exist under that foreign country's law. And so those are the types of concerns and considerations that I think we're, we're funneling into these discussions and, and making clear that there was a real almost crisis moment here um, that needed to be addressed. Yeah. And just to say a few words about the interagency process that went into it, which I think was really interesting. I mean, this is actually how, if I remember correctly, Aaron and I met. Um, I was at the time working for the National Security Division, and Aaron was working for uh, the Criminal Division in the Computer Crime Section. Uh, and so obviously, this kind of fell between the the or on the border uh, of of these two uh, parts of, of DOJ and Aaron and I as as callow youth at the time uh, were tasked with um, the really fun scut work. I mean, we basically our role was to own the Word document for two years uh, as we slowly started to build this thing together. And it, I don't know uh, about you, Aaron, but I remember when um, the bill was finally enacted. I, I read it at some point and I, I saw, oh, I put that M dash in. I remember yeah. putting that M dash in there. It was a, a, a fun moment. And I, I mentioned this only because, you know, I, I think that there's often a um, uh, kind of misunderstanding of how policies developed that something comes out fully formed out of Congress when really there's a long, long process of the executive branch itself figuring out what it wants. And then that process is itself incredibly complicated because, you know, for all the reasons Aaron was mentioning, this issue raised equities for so many different parts of the government. For DOJ, obviously, um, both in terms of DOJ's own access to data and helping their law enforcement partners around the around the world, but also the State Department had a lot of interest in there because of their concern with democracy promotion and the open internet. Commerce cared a lot because these were, of course, U.S. companies. Then you had various pockets of the White House, the you know the, the, the trade people and the economic people, and the National Security Council, the intelligence community cared a lot. So there was a lot of just intra-executive branch negotiating. And I, I think I'm allowed to say this. I don't think this is a state secret, but um, I think the the success of it um, was in some part to uh, uh, the roadshows that Aaron and I would 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 do where we'd, we'd wander around DC with bags of Milano cookies that we'd buy from whatever Walgreens was closest to. Uh, yeah, Aaron, Aaron remembers this. Whatever Walgreens was closest to our next meeting. And we'd come in, right, as these guys from DOJ and 
I don't think DOJ is not necessarily known for being particularly fuzzy. Uh, and I think Aaron and I are on the fuzzy side of, of DOJ. So we come in with these cookies and, <laughs> Literally and, and you know, it, it took a lot of bags of Milano cookies to get uh, the State Department on board, but ultimately uh, it, it, it worked out. Uh, and that, of course, was only the beginning of the process because at the same time we were talking uh, to companies and, and to, you know, folks like Greg in the uh, in civil society. I don't remember getting served any Milano cookies. Um, this is probably when we should also announce this podcast might be brought to you by Pepperidge Farm, apparently. <laughs> yeah, we're ha- happy for the sponsorship if you want to reach out. <laughs> so one thing that I experienced in this process as an outsider at Facebook at the time was that it felt very consultative to me. I don't know if that's representative of Justice Department processes generally or how your point about how policy moves through the process, but it felt consultative to me in industry and it wasn't just industry, I think it was civil society as well that was part of this consultation process. So Greg, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your perspective at CDT and um, what it was like for you. So, so we were pretty much in the middle of it all, having recognized fairly early on that location of the data probably ought not to be determinative about what rules apply to it. Data nowadays moves around to different data centers and, and it's easy for a company to choose what law would apply if uh, the location of the data was determinative. And it just seemed like that wasn't going to, to last. And that there was a lot of pressure on the companies to do something to give foreign governments access. Here's, here's the rub though. A lot of foreign governments that want access to data held by US companies don't have very protective laws. And in fact, no country has a probable cause requirement like the U.S. does, which effectively governs access to communications content under U.S. law. It's a high standard. And for us in the civil liberties community, the question was, do we backtrack? Do we leave some space for other governments to get this data who don't have a probable cause requirement, particularly for content, and, and just say, okay, uh, that country's law is going to be sufficient. So what that country's law was became a really important issue to a lot of folks. And I want to share one story because I had kind of an epiphany about that whole issue. I was at the University of Luxembourg doing a speaking engagement. And I said to the crowd, about 150 people, lots of students, but some non-students. I said to the crowd, what if I told you that the rule that would govern access to your data as a criminal defendant in a case could either be a really high standard under US law, probable cause, or a lower standard under European law and the law of your country. How many would prefer the higher standard so the government couldn't get access to your data except by meeting that higher standard? Not one hand went up, not one hand. Everybody wanted the law of their country to apply. And, you know, that's important for a civil liberties advocate that is trying to protect rights of people around the world by what the U.S. does in its law. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, and just to clarify one one point about what Gregor was saying about different countries' laws, you know, not to get again too deep into the weeds of the Cloud Act itself, but you know, what ended up being a big point of contention or at least negotiation, again, both inside, you know, the executive branch and then also sort of with tech companies and civil society, was the question of what countries could qualify to be in uh, well, we tried never to use the word club because that sounded exclusive, but it was it's obviously a club. Um, now, I, now I can say whatever, whatever I want now that I'm outside of DOJ, which is nice. Um, you know what uh, the requirements were for those for those countries. Right. You know, one possibility was to say, well, the United States and let's say the attorney general can just choose whoever he or she wants to be part of the club. Other options were, well, let's make sure the attorney general has to uh, agree with the secretary of state or someone else in the government. Um, other options were to be much more prescriptive within the law itself as to say, you know, there must be this, you know, the foreign countries laws must have these and these and these standards. Um, and something like kind of in between that was ultimately decided on where the law requires several U.S. entities to agree to let the country in and the country has to meet certain somewhat vaguely defined standards and exactly the wording of those standards was at, at issue. And and I think that you know one way of thinking about it is, I think you, know, you can divide the world into sort of three categories of kind of countries to to think about in this regard. So one category of countries, let's say North Korea or China or Iran or Russia, these are countries that no one was ever going to let in the club, no matter what the law said. And so those countries just kind of weren't really, I think, much at issue. Then there were other countries, and I think Greg alludes to this. Let's call it the uh, sort of advanced liberal democracies, let's say in Western Europe or East Asia. And I think the assumption was that whatever standard we write in has to incorporate those countries. Like a standard that excludes the UK or Finland or South Korea is just not responsive to the realities of a global internet. Um, And even if those other countries don't use exactly the concepts of probable cause we use, like overall, they're overall criminal justice system, I think we have to show like some respect for being fundamentally at the same level as ours. And then the third category, and I think, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure later on, and I think the most interesting category was, what do you do with a country like Brazil, or India, or the Philippines, right? Countries that are kind of at a transition point, and you could potentially push them in one direction to be more rights protective, or you could push them in another direction to be less rights protective, how do you craft the law that uh, encourages them to increase their civil, uh, their their protections? Um, and that I think was the most interesting question. And, you know, I think the answer to which is, we hope we did the right, we, we did a good job, but we're not uh, ultimately sure. I, I think that 
it gives the drafters of the legislation a little more credit than is warranted, <laughs> to be frank. What country has indeed altered its law, raised the standards in order to get qualified for a Cloud Act agreement? What country has raised the civil liberty standards governing access to that data? I don't think any have. And in fact, the one country with which we now have an agreement that's functioning, the UK, is moving in the opposite direction, as illustrated by the online safety bill that is now pending in Parliament. And, and I, I, I just think that the, the protections that we ended up getting in the legislation, they are vague. And that means that DOJ will apply them uh, as it sees fit and perhaps influenced by uh, factors such as, do we need this country to allow us to operate a base, a military base uh, in the country? So there's, there's a lot of potential for political impact. And there's, uh, on our part, there was a lot of concern that the standards were just too, too vague. I do want to um, engage with Matt about the process that we were both involved in, in talking out what a good approach to foreign government's demands for data stored in the U.S. by U.S. companies might be. We convened a series of meetings and, uh, uh, those were led by uh, Andrew Woods and um, Jennifer Daskal at uh, CDT. And we had some really uh, tough discussions about what the criteria ought to be. You should have had Milano cookies. It would have made it easier. I think that was, the, that, was the, that was why it was so tough. We were all hungry. When there's a tough meeting at CDT, I bake baklava. <laughs> and uh, um, it, even baklava did not smooth some of the rough edges. Uh, Matt, what were your impressions of those discussions? Well, I, I think one thing that was interesting is that now it seems evident that we were having those conversations against the backdrop of Justice Department and UK government negotiations. But at the time, we didn't really know that, right? I mean, I remember Greg, you sort of saying explicitly at the time, like, we've heard some stuff that, about ongoing discussions, but we don't exactly know what's happening. And so there was the sense in the companies, in civil society, and in the academic community that was involved that we were we were drafting something and thinking through a set of norms that were meaningful for us, but that would be embedded hopefully in some form in a policy process. But I think at the time we started some of that initiative, we really didn't know what the policy process was. Companies had certainly had some discussions with both the UK government because of their interest in the data and the, and the Justice Department because of the MLAP process. But there were sort of different negotiations that different parties were privy to and I remember that sense of kind of what was looming beyond the CDT conference room as being a big uncertain thing for us. Matt, let me, I want to ask you a follow-up question because, you know, again, at the time you were, you were at Facebook. Uh, I think, I think it was still Facebook. It was not meta yet um, doing, doing policy work. And I remember, you know, I, I remember sort of two, two things that struck me and I think struck my colleagues from, from DOJ. One was that we were really, negotiating with companies kind of frankly as much as we were negotiating with foreign governments and if anything it really felt like uh the companies were in some sense more of our equals than the foreign governments who are frankly coming to us you know you know begging is maybe too strong of a word but like really needing help and that struck me as kind of an interesting uh, fact um and so i'm curious you know whether you felt 
that uh, you were negotiating with the U.S. government as sort of uh, on equal on equal footing? Because that's certainly, I think, how it felt uh, from us. And I think the second question, relatedly, was I think sometimes there was a sense that like it wasn't clear what the companies actually wanted, right? Like they wanted this problem to go away, but they didn't want the problem to go away in a way that would cause other problems. And so, you know, as you were going into those discussions and obviously Facebook wanted what it wanted and Google what it wanted and you know Apple had its own views which you know were sometimes different and, and not I mean did you guys go in with here's what we want or we're just here trying to be reactive so that whatever you know you have the US government and the UK government figure out doesn't break how we do business mm-hmm. yeah so it's a great question this process was probably the most satisfying thing that I participated in in my time at Facebook. And that is putting Greg's points aside, which I think are really important ones about whether this process that felt meaningful actually produced a good result. I think that's sort of a, a separate question and, and obviously like a, the, the critical one, but the process itself felt very meaningful to me. And it felt meaningful, not because of the dynamic, Alan, that I think you're alluding to of like, were the companies, did we have diplomatic flags at the table that gave us equal representation? It, it didn't feel to me to be a power thing. It felt like it was a group of people who saw a problem that warranted solving. And then that group of people was tr- were trying to come up with the best solutions to solve that problem. And I would I think that w- was the way it felt vis-a-vis the Justice Department and the UK government. I mean, my re- what I remember from those conversations was less negotiation, like, if we do X, will you support it? And more like, if we do X, what will the consequence be? Because we want to understand the consequences. And then we would like pivot in a way to try to be responsive to the consequences. And that was how I felt about the conversations with the civil society and academic group as well. Um, like Greg and I had lots of disagreements, I think, in the process about like what might be optimal or whether something was sufficient or not. But I, I think the nature of those conversations, as I recall them, was always like, what's the Venn diagram where we can find the thing that overlaps where we think that this is additive and positive and pushing the ball forward in a useful way? So that is really the root of why it felt so fulfilling to me. On your question about the companies, it sounds like you're suggesting, I think maybe we did a bad job of representing what the problem was, because I felt like it was actually crystal clear. It was, if we cannot provide data in response to a case where the underlying request is consistent with international human rights standards, and that means going through an MLAT process that causes significant delays, foreign countries will do really problematic things that are bad. That's bad for everyone. They will arrest employees. They will pass really problematic laws, data localization laws. Um, they will issue fines. They will take retributive action against other American companies. And so it felt like we were on a path for a race to the bottom. And I think the value proposition was, does the Cloud Act create some alternative set of incentives to create a race to the top? What Greg's saying is the evidence that we have suggests that it hasn't. And that, that strikes me as like potentially true, but that to me is the, we had an opportunity for it to be different. There are not many policy processes that change incentives in that way. We had an opportunity to do something different. And I thought it was worth at least a try given where we saw the direction of like all internet freedom metrics going at the time. Yeah. And I want to, I want to pick up on that, Matt, because I think, and, and maybe also loop back to, to Greg's suggestions earlier that, that the Cloud Act hasn't been effective. And I want to challenge that, that, that view. Uh, in the following way, uh, I think it's it's we should start from I think what the problem was and what the and what the option uh, the options were on the table at that time to to sort of think about what are the other directions or other other paths that that um, this world could have followed 
and and option one, of course, um, was the was the stuff that that Matt was alluding to, um, which is foreign countries taking aggressive actions to obtain access to data um, that are ultimately bad, not just for the companies who have to deal with the legal consequences of of those requests, but also broader privacy implications. So there needed to be some some action that gets taken um, that solves for those problems. But also is obtainable in a way. And, and, you know, I was thinking about Alan's introduction about what are the, what are the different sort of options that were on the table in terms of what the agreement, uh, what this legislation or, or bilateral executive agreements would look like. And I was reminded that in fact, another option is a multilateral, um, treaty, um, that brings in a bunch of parties all at once. And so, but, but of course the, the consensus there was that that would just take too long. And so there was, there was on the one hand, this need to act quickly and effectively and protect a range of different interests that sometimes are competing, um, and at the same time recognize that we needed, you know, that, that we would need to account for um, the fact that there other countries would grow into this um, framework um, in the future. And, and when I think about, you know, has it been successful or not, I think about it more from the from the fact that we haven't seen those aggressive, at least in my mind, um, as many aggressive enforcement actions from foreign countries um, that we might otherwise have seen had the Cloud Act not come into effect. And so I, you know, I think that the UK has not brought an enforcement action um, against a US company for data held in the United States concerning an overseas person like in the UK or otherwise. And I think that's a that's a positive outcome of this. At the same time, you know, I I agree with you that if if countries that are you know subject to these agreements are not improving their privacy protections, it's obviously something that we ought to correct for, or the system ought to correct for. And maybe there will be opportunities to do that, um, given the role of the United States. And you know, after one year, um, taking a look at what the foreign country or the foreign partner has done uh, to comply with with its obligations. Um, and I, so I think that you know, right now we're what four months in, five months in. Um, after entry into force of the first agreement, there's a lot of uh, a lot I think to see. We don't really know, as Matt said. I think after a year of this, we'll have a sense of how how has it worked, and are the incentives built correctly. So I think I think we can agree on this that hindsight in this case is not 2020. We don't have a lot of data about how the Cloud Act is being used, and we don't have a lot of visibility into the discussions between the US and the other governments that are seeking Cloud Act agreements. But we do have some other interesting data points that suggest that we're not accomplishing the goal of, uh, at least one of the goals of, of entering into the Cloud Act. One shining example is India. India wants to be able to get access to data held by US tech companies for its criminal investigations. And there is discussion about there being a cloud act between the US and India. Maybe that'll never happen, but you would think that India would, if it really was um, interested in getting cloud act agreement and the cloud act was working like it should, it wouldn't be enacting legislation with hostage provisions. Provisions that say that if you don't turn over the data US company, you've got to have somebody in country who can be arrested because of your failure to turn over data. That doesn't seem like we're accomplishing one of the goals of the Cloud Act, which was to relieve some of this pressure on the companies. As, as I recall, the Cloud Act had two kind of two categories of requirements. One was what the agreement had to include, 
And another was what the country, the standards the country had to meet. With respect to the agreements, one area where I think we fell short was um, the provision that says the terms of the agreement shall not create any, any obligation that providers be capable of decrypting data. This goes to data encrypted end to end, which is essential in my view for the continuing security of data on the internet. And yet you've got countries, including the UK, that are enacting legislation that would essentially make it so a company would have to be able to understand the data it's carrying, which is completely inconsistent with end-to-end -end encryption. It doesn't say, the, the, the Cloud Act does not say the laws of the country can't compel this about encryption. It says that the terms of the agreement can't. That uh, We came up short in that area, and I think it's going to hurt us and is hurting us. Um, for example, with respect to the current legislation pending in the UK, the online safety bill. And, and just to clarify, Greg, you're totally you're totally right describing that. That was an intentional choice, right? That was part of, you know, because encryption was at the time and obviously still is such a hot and frankly toxic issue. I, I think everyone at the table recognized that, like, if we were going to continue having this conversation, we had to put encryption in just a completely different bucket. And and so I think that that I think is at least that explains why why that choice was made. Um, because I, I don't know about you, but if we had tried to solve the encryption problem as part of the Cloud Act, I don't think we would have gotten anywhere. So on the question of whether this worked, we actually asked a couple of companies about their views and we asked the Justice Department for their view. So the responses that we heard from the companies, I think, were kind of consistent with what we're saying in this conversation, that it's still early days, that it's likely that future company transparency reports will include data on Cloud Act requests and that that will enable uh, folks like Greg, who are really skilled at reading transparency reports, to have some sense of have that data point to evaluate, at least from that perspective, questions of whether it worked or not. Um, we also asked the Justice Department. The Justice Department said the UK agreement, which is the only one in force so far, has been operating very successfully. The UK has robustly used UK legal process under the terms of the agreement to obtain evidence held by US service providers in a wide variety of investigations. Reciprocally, the United States has used US legal process to obtain evidence held by providers in the UK. So obviously that gives us a good qualitative sense, at least from the Justice Department's perspective, about how it's thinking about this. But I think we we certainly do lack, at least so far, some of the quantitative transparency or other forms, maybe of qualitative transparency that would be useful in evaluating um, whether the agreement has played out in practice as we hoped it might. Does anyone have thoughts about about that? What what is the what is the transparency that we would like to have and and don't, or is or is the level of transparency we have the right amount of transparency? So no, it's it's a, it's a great question to ask, and I think I think we can think about the uh, it's obviously early days. I think I think we have an opportunity right now to think about what do we want to see right at the end of this first year. I think the transparency uh, reports will be really important for us to understand what do these aggregate numbers look like to the extent that that they're made available. But I also think there, you know, at the end of this first year, there's a provision in in Article 12 of the US-UK agreement, and I expect this will be in others, um, that the two parties are supposed to conduct a, a, a reciprocal review, essentially, of each other's compliance with the use of the agreement and their obligations under the agreement. And I think that could be a really useful opportunity to, you know, if, if these respective governments could offer a statement about what learnings they had from that review 
that could be a really interest, interesting opportunity to hear some context, not just sort of see the numbers, um, but also to understand, you know, behind the scenes, how is this working? Um, so that's, I think, I think at that one year point, you know, if, if we can have like a, a, you know, a review from DOJ or a review from the UK government that speaks to sort of how that last year has gone independent of these transparency reports, you know, I think that would be a, a beneficial outcome. Yeah. And, and just to say one, one thing and, and, you know, to, I think to be fair to, to Greg's point, I, Greg, I think you're absolutely right that we may have been overly optimistic about what this could do f- with respect to countries like India. And I think you're right that the behavior of the Indian government has not shown a lot of desire to move in a kind of more civil rights friendly direction. And and so, you know, I say this because in addition to the sort of transparency reports Aaron's talking about, I think the real question is what is a sort of counterfactual report, right? What would have happened in the absence of this? And, you know, what, what the way that I interpret the India example, Greg, though I totally agree with you that it's disappointing, is maybe differently than you do, which is not so much that the Cloud Act failed to change the behavior of a country like India, but the Cloud Act or anything like it would never have been able to change the behavior of a country like India. And even if the Cloud Act had been much, much tougher and much more prescriptive, um, it just shows that at least right now, there's no agreement that will allow for a country like India to to participate in it. And that's and that's unfortunate, but perhaps not something that anyone could have fixed. So it's been five years since the Cloud Act was passed. In another five, do you think we're going to have a better, clearer sense of whether this model is the right one? I think it kind of depends in part on how much transparency we get about what is happening uh, as a result of the Cloud Act. How many surveillance demands did the UK make in its first year? How many involved real-time communications, which is, you know, that's under a really high standard in the United States. Have the demands that the UK has made been as narrow as we perhaps contemplated they would be as set up forth in the uh, Cloud Act itself? And I think the quantity of the demands matters. The UK has a lot more surveillance per capita, I think, than most countries do. And so it would be interesting to know whether that's uh, being facilitated by the Cloud Act. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll say a few things here as well. I think, you know, looking at the timeline for just on the uh, on the UK agreement, it took roughly five years for that to come into into force. We've got two more negotiations that we know are in play. There's conversations with the EU. I think the next five years will give us a really good sense of whether this this uh, framework is scalable. But I want to pivot to a slightly different thought on this, which is, you know, on the with the Cloud Act, we're thinking about these cross-border um, data access conflicts within the international uh, space. But I think, as we've seen in the post-Dobbs era as well, this is becoming increasingly a domestic issue um, within the United States itself, as what, you know, used to be considered um, consensus norms about what's criminal and therefore subject to criminal investigation is now dissolving. And you have states that are potentially seeking data um, from providers, again, that are located outside of their jurisdiction for investigations into activity that's not criminal in the state where that data is located. And so that creates, in effect, the same type of conflict that we see in sort of the the, the cloud context as well. And so um, to me, at least, um, these, these questions about is this working is not just a question in the cloud act space, but also one that we're confronting increasingly here at home as well. 
Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Matt, Aaron, Greg, it is fabulous. So much fun to get the band back together. Uh, and uh, I'm sure it will not be another five years uh, before we talk about this again. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks, Alan. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.